any time is a good time to watch the 1998 movie You've Got Mail, but I always find it to be especially perfect at this time of the year. And it's a moment from that movie that really put this week's book on my radar all those years ago. Remember this part? Do you have the shoe books? The shoe books? Who's the author? I don't know. My friend told me my daughter has to read the shoe books, so here I am. Noel Stritfield. Noel Stritfield wrote ballet shoes and skating shoes and theater shoes and dancing shoes and... I'd start with ballet shoes first. It's my favorite. Although skating shoes is completely wonderful. On today's episode, we take a deep dive into the fabulous Kathleen Kelly's favorite, Ballet Shoes by Noel Streetfield. The book was published in 1936 and tells the story of the Fossil family, Pauline, Petrova, Posey, and their caretakers, Garney and Nana. The family came together thanks to the mysterious great-uncle Matthew, better known as Gum, who brought each of the girls back to his home in England after one of his world travels and then proceeded to go back out, seeking more adventures. In ballet shoes, Pauline, Petrova, and Posey all explore the world of dance and performance as students at a respected school nearby. Since Gum's financial assistance seems to have run out, their goal is to hone their talents so they can one day earn money for their family as performers. Throughout the book, we experience the highs and lows of their journeys on and off the stage. On episode 124, my guest and I talk all things ballet shoes. We discuss the way it portrays financial struggles, birth order, pride, and found family. We talk about the hints of progressivism that we find in an otherwise classic story. We chat about what this book has to say about appearance politics and various kinds of privilege. And we talk about how ballet shoes is not such a great look for men. Today's guest is the lovely Jenny Bayless. Jenny lives with her husband in a small seaside town in England, which sounds very idyllic to me. The 12 Dates of Christmas, which was published this fall, is Jenny's debut novel. Jenny also celebrated her first middle grade novel, Malice in Wonderland, in 2020. A few other fun facts about Jenny's journey to writing. She went to university when she was 40 and spent six years studying part-time so she could continue to work as a baker and finally graduated with a degree in creative and professional writing. A neck injury put an end to Jenny's baking career, and she spent her recovery time writing The Twelve Dates of Christmas and working part-time in an antique jeweler shop. Jenny loves reading, walking, eating great food, and, of course, chocolate. Follow Jenny on Twitter at BaylessJenny and on Instagram at JennyBayless. Both of those handles are Jenny with an I. I kicked off my holiday reading with The Twelve Dates of Christmas a few months ago, and I found it totally fun and charming. I would highly recommend it. I'll be giving away a copy over on Instagram this week, so be sure to check that out. If you're not already following on Instagram and you want a chance to win a copy of The Twelve Dates of Christmas, you can find the show at SSRPod. Our handle is the same on Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast or The SSR Podcast Community. I have so much fun sharing with you about my life and my reading and podcasting behind the scenes on social media, so please don't hesitate to come say hey and follow along. While you're following along, it would be super cool if you would consider giving the show a shout out on social media. Take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it and share it to your Instagram story, tagging SSRPod so I can see. You can even make a note there about why you're loving the episode or what you're doing while you listen. Just like leaving five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes, this is a fantastic way to spread the SSR love so that more and more book lovers can find the show and the community around it. Thank you in advance for sharing. A big thank you also goes out to all of the Patreon sponsors listening to episode 124. I appreciate you so much. 
If you'd like to come on board as an SSR patron, which gives you the chance to support the show for just a few dollars a month and access some awesome exclusive rewards in return, now is a great time. I recently dropped the membership prices, so it's never been more accessible. Visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. There are newsletters and bonus episodes and SSR merch and so many other fun things up for grabs. This week's episode of SSR is brought to you by Alexandra Ivey's Don't Look. This author's best-selling romantic suspense titles routinely appear on best-of lists, and her new book is now available. Don't Look is perfect for fans of thrillers, suspense, and romance. And if you're a fan of all three of those genres, then you have definitely met your match with this book. Get yourself a copy and hunker down under your favorite blanket, because I am pretty sure you're not going to want to put Don't Look down. If you're in the market for some unputdownable audiobooks this season, you need to check out Libro FM. With Libro FM, you can support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks and their prices are exactly the same as the ones you would buy elsewhere. With all that's happened in 2020, independent bookstores have really taken a hit, and Libro FM gives all of us a chance to show them some extra love this holiday season and beyond. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. This December, you might also consider buying a gift membership for the book lovers in your life, or even a gift membership for yourself. You deserve it. There's more information at the link in my bio over on Instagram, or you can get all the details on Libro FM. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to SSR. Hello. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you on the show today. We are talking about a book that I know the SSR community is really thrilled to be hearing about. The book is Ballet Shoes by Noelle Straightfield. It's the first in what is sort of lovingly known as like the shoes series, the shoes books. And you and I were chatting briefly about this a few minutes ago, but this book really gained notoriety with the movie You've Got Mail when Meg Ryan's character, Kathleen Kelly, the wonderful Kathleen Kelly, recommends the shoes books to people in the bookstore. Do you remember that moment? I really do because I love that movie and I I knew about ballet shoes because I'd read it when I was a kid. So it was like a really nice, it was like a connection moment because I was like, oh, that's a reference that I really know. <laughs> yeah, it's always nice to see that in a movie because it's like, oh, these famous people are talking about something that I know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you read these books when you were a kid. I'd love if you could share a little bit more about your memories of reading them, your experience reading them, and then maybe why this was your pick to discuss on the show today. Well, I still had my copy. So my copy of Ballet Shoes, the the original is like, it's got really brown tattered pages. That's so cool. I'm jealous. Oh, it's so lovely. And I'd had it, I hadn't read it for years, but I'd, I 
couldn't throw it away. So it's moved with me all, all through my adult life. So I was really pleased to be able to pick it off the bookshelf because when I saw it on your list, I was like, well, that's that's the one. So it was lovely. And originally when I was little, I wanted to read it because I used to do ballet. I wasn't good at ballet, but my <laughs> mum had always been at stage school when she was a kid. So she kind of felt like we all ought to do ballet lessons. And so so we did. So anything that was to do with ballet, we used to buy the books. So the ballet shoes was kind of a natural, you know, thing for me to go for. That makes sense. Do you remember if you enjoyed the book when you were a kid? I did really enjoy it. It felt very cozy. And it's been really interesting to read. Um, in fact, there were points in the book that I can remember vividly making my toes curl over when uh, when Pauline gets above her station and she gets really kind of haughty and bossy and I can remember reading it and just being like oh my god because it just makes you feel like so and then reading it again as an adult I was like I still got the same feeling I was like yeah that's really uncomfortable you're like oh my kid self was so on top of it like I (laughs) I knew when she was getting out of control (laughs) that's always a nice feeling I think I read this book But it's one of those situations where I'm like, do I remember reading this book or do I remember hearing about this book from You've Got Mail? So I'm not quite sure. If I did read it, it's not one that has been particularly memorable for me. So it was interesting to come back to it because I didn't have those kind of like embedded memories of it. But I I really was happy we came back to it. It was different than any of the books we've read for the podcast in a while. I haven't read like a book that felt like a like an old school classic in this way in a long time. For listener reference, it was published in 1936. This was the author's first book for children, which is kind of interesting. And I think it's actually particularly interesting because to me at least, and I'd love your thoughts on this, it didn't really read to me like a children's book. Yeah, I agree. When I was reading it again now, I was thinking how would that translate today with 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 what children expect because it was it tackles some pretty you know grown-up worries and that's not to say that kids today don't have grown-up worries but quite often in kids books these days there's there's they're much more fast-paced um they're obviously much more diverse and then I think I think so it does it has it it feels very rooted in a classic sort of sense doesn't it it really does and I even when the book arrived and I pulled it out of the package I was surprised by how big it was for some reason. Like, I don't know. And and this is my own, I guess, I don't know, prejudice against a book called Ballet Shoes with a pink cover. I guess I was imagining that would be a much slimmer little paperback. And then I opened it and it's like a pretty dense book. It's I think 230, 240 pages long, lots of text, small text. In my head, this is a book that I thought was maybe meant for like six to 10 year olds, but it reads like it's meant for kids who are probably 10 and older even just kind of at like a reading level, level, not to be repetitive. But then as you mentioned, the content is pretty grown up as well. There's a lot about finances, about class. And I was curious about like, I guess because it was written in 1936, there were lots of different concerns that people were dealing with in the 30s than what we deal with now. Although given the pandemic, that's changed. Like I think so many families are are dealing with a new level of economic strain compared to where they were even a few months ago. But the, the children characters in this book spend a vast majority of those 240 pages talking about money, being concerned with the money that is or isn't coming into their family. And then actually like, thinking about how they play a role 
in those finances. Yeah, it's a real, it's a very real burden for them, isn't it? You know, it's one thing when you're a kid and you do, you know, you worry about things or, you know, but it, this is like a, this is a grown up level of worry that they're having, isn't it? That that feeling that they need to contribute, that they need to not be greedy. Uh, they need to not ask for too much. You know, it's a very, they're very aware. And I, I think actually, like you were saying, you know, kids these days, I don't think I picked up on that when I read it the first time. I don't think I've, it's only going back and reading it now that I think gosh those children are portrayed with having such such a weight on their shoulders and then and obviously they're only you know they they start earning when they're 12 and I was thinking well is it like that today but I was chatting to a friend of mine who works in a school and she was saying although they're not 12 but she's got 16 year olds that in this current climate they are having to work 20 hours a week as well as fitting in their schoolwork because they are having to contribute to the family finances so in one sense it feels like it was a real yesteryear book and then in another sense I think actually not that much is different really you know there are still degrees of that of that worry on young people yeah I, th- I think that's a great note and for the sake of transparency I'll share that when I was in high school I always worked but it was never for the purpose of providing for my family and I know that that is a pressure that is not unique to 1936 and is not unique to 2020. And I, of course, want to acknowledge my privilege in in this moment and say that I am aware that there are probably listeners out there who have shouldered the burden of financial responsibility for their family when they were this age, maybe, maybe in their teens, um, maybe even as young as 12, 13, 14, 15. So I did want to note that and just share that to me while this felt like so much pressure. I'm sure this is something that a lot of people can actually relate to. Yeah. And I would imagine that maybe it would be very resonant for kids who have felt that pressure at an age that seemed premature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was the same. I always worked from the age of 14 and but it was that money was my you know that was mine to keep I didn't have to put into the house Um, my parents just thought it was a good idea for me to have a job right have a work ethic pay for your own gas all that kind of stuff (laughs) so the book opens with a character that we we come to know as gum great uncle Matthew and I have to say that this book was not a great look for him at least in my opinion so great uncle Matthew is he's a fossil collector And he goes all over the world collecting fossils that he then displays in this like beautiful home of his. And then he sustains an injury on one of his like adventure vacations, fossil hunting. And so he has to take different kinds of like vacations that aren't quite as intense, not quite as adventurous. And on those vacations, he decides that instead of bringing fossils home, he's going to bring literal babies home. (laughs) So everyone just let that sink in. Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? It's like uh, you can kind of, you know, in the realms of fiction, you can think, well, maybe maybe once you might come across an orphan, you know, and think, oh, well, I need to save this baby from drowning. But three times just seems excessive. <laughs> it seems excessive. And I understand that, like, as you mentioned, so Pauline, who is the oldest, is saved from drowning because he's on some sort of a cruise. Yeah. So yes, it's the right thing to do for him to save this baby. Of course, I'm not taking that lightly. But then he brings her home and leaves her with Sylvia, who is his niece, who lives in his home while he's gone. And then her, like, nanny from when she was growing up, who goes by Nana, And my favorite part of this like early section of the book was when Gum just starts bringing these babies home. And when he brings Pauline home and and is like, guess what, ladies? Like, I brought you a baby. How cool (laughs) is this? And Sylvia's like, "Uh, I'm not 
I'm not sure. And Nana is like, I'm not sure who you think has time to take care of this baby. And Gun says something to the effect of like, don't all women love babies? Yeah. <laughs> and listeners, you know that this is a feminist leading <laughs> podcast. So I just got to like get my little moment in here of saying this is a very like of its time kind of assumption, a very like heteronormative yeah, dare I say misogynistic assumption that great uncle Matthew was making that like, oh, you're a woman. Yeah, of course, you would love to have a baby to take care of. I know that I didn't even call or write you a letter to let you know that I was bringing this infant <laughs> home. But like, you should be so happy that I did. Yeah. And it's not even just that, you know, from the misogynistic point of view, it, it's more that he doesn't even consider in his wildest dreams that this is any any different really than than bringing home a, a piece of rock. You know, it is just as a thing that he found that he brings home uh, and then and then completely relinquishes responsibility and, and goes back on his travels again. It's uh, it's quite a strange thing, isn't it, for that someone would, would do that. So he does seem, he's obviously an intelligent man, but ac- academically, but in, emotionally, I think he's probably not that clever. Yeah, and that's a good point. Like he brings her home and then he's going to leave again. Like it's not as though, it, it, there, there would have been sort of a different like sweetness factor if he'd saved this baby, fallen in love with her wanted to bring her home and take care of him and like be part of her upbringing, but that's not what's happening. He is just like collecting her. And I think given the lukewarm reaction that he got from Sylvia and Nana to Pauline, it's interesting that he was like, you know what? I'm going to bring back Petrova, the second one. Yeah. Um, And they'll be fine. And then again, there's Posey, who is the third baby who comes along. Just like an interesting way to pull the family together. One thing that I did really enjoy about that aspect of the family coming together is there's this emphasis on like found family, which I think is something we're talking about a lot more in 2020 than we ever have before. Yeah, Often more with respect to friends and the people that you choose to surround yourself with once you become an adult yourself, I think, especially for like millennials who are moving away from home and living in cities and sort of like cobbling together their families based on who they're meeting. But I, I did find that thread throughout this book where there's just this focus on like, your family is who you choose and not just because great uncle Matthew like basically threw all these babies into home with yeah. these women and was like, take care of them. But because these women, Sylvia and Nana have chosen to sort of like fuse their lives together. They've chosen to take care of these children. These children have then chosen to look at each other as sisters. And then they surround yeah. themselves with all these other adults when they come in to board in their home. Like I thought that was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Cause there's never any question is there? once those girls are, in that family, that's it, they're sisters. You know, it's never questioned. When Pauline is introducing, you know, Petrova to sort of managers of theatres and things like that, there's never, you know, there's never, this is my sister followed by an explanation. It's just, this is my sister. And I think that's really nice. I think that's really important that, because there's not, you know, in many ways it's quite a, you know, like a classic stereotypical sort of kid's book of the time, but that family is unusual for the time. Um, and I think it does work really well today because like you say, it's it's just, this is your family and it's accepted. You know, a lot of people back in the 80s, there was an awful lot of talk about dysfunctional families. You know, if you weren't a nuclear family, you were dysfunctional. Whereas now, kind of, you know, 20 odd years later, we're kind of seeing that family means a lot of different things. And it doesn't, you know, if you're not just mummy, daddy, two children, everything can be normal, you know, and I think that's really important, quite ahead of its time, really, considering, you know, a lot of the other things in the book. (laughs) Yes, that are not so ahead of their time. Um, Yeah, I agree. I mean, we don't even, I I don't think we even see the word adopted 
anywhere in the book. They're not talking about like adopted sisters, adopted no. daughters. There's not a lot of torture about like what they're going to call Sylvia and Nana. Like for a second, they're trying to figure out what would be appropriate for them to call Sylvia because they don't want her to be called by her first name by these children. And they end up landing on Garney as a yeah. a short version of Guardian, which I thought was very sweet. But that goes on for maybe half a page. Like there's not a lot of hemming and hawing about like, are we their mothers? Like, are we there? It's just sort of solved. We have a name yeah. that works and we move on. Yeah, which I think is really nice. I think it's such a positive message for the, for the time and and for now. Just, you know, just love each other. That's, that's all you need. <laughs> I agree. And there's also this element of like, this is such a cliche, but like it takes a village to raise a child, Yeah, which comes in later on because the hilarious and terrible thing about great uncle Matthew is that he had sort of promised to take care of these women and these children. And he had said he had these plans to continue to send money home while he was on his travels. And at a certain point, the money kind of just stops arriving. Yeah. And so they find themselves in a position to have to find other ways to make money. So they decide to bring in boarders, aka renters, as, as we would call them, at least here in the States. So then this whole other like cast of adult characters rolls in. And each one of those people then has a role to play in nurturing the three children and teaching the three children and inspiring them and parenting them. And I thought that too was fairly ahead of its time. Yeah, I did. I, I, I really liked that. In fact, I reading it again now, I like to think that the two doctors, I like to think they're actually partners. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the two women. I think, yeah, I, I because I think in um, other things I've read as an adult, you know, I think that obviously in those days, being gay was very much in the closet. So a lot of women did live together, but had to pretend that they were just, you know, two professional ladies who just decided it would be better to share the rent. And um, so in my mind, I, yeah, yeah. I, I like to think that, you know, that they're actually, they're actually lovers. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea. And I also think the fact that we have two doctors who are women was probably Absolutely. at the time very progressive. Yeah. Definitely. And I think there are elements of that, aren't there? That, you know, with um, Petrova wanting to uh, be, you know, she's interested in cars and planes and all that kind of stuff. And, and really, at no point does anyone say to her, you can't do that because you're a girl. You know, obviously, she has to fit her that, that in around her dancing and everything else that she has to do that she's expected to do as a girl. But nobody says to her, well, there's no, you know, there's no future in that for you, dear because, you know, you'll probably get married and be chained to the kitchen sink. So I think that was quite progressive as well. Yeah, and she has a man encouraging her in that direction, which is yes. notable as well. Mr. Simpson is another one of the boarders, and he rolls up with this, like, really cool car that Petrova is fascinated with, and then he tells her that he's opening an auto garage, and he asks her if she wants to, like, spend time there, work with him, and he's the one who's continuing to, like, encourage her to, yeah. yes, you have to like engage with your studies. Right now, you might have to be pursuing this performance thing so that you can bring in money for the family. But I also like want to empower you to explore this other like real passion you have for really like things that move, planes, cars, heavy equipment, which at the time I would think like not to make assumptions, but the way I imagine a man in 1936 who was raised in this very heteronormative environment, like maybe wouldn't be that excited about encouraging a little girl that way. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's really true. I think it was, you know, even, even when I was growing up, there were assumptions, you know, when you were at school and things like that about what the girls would do and what the boys would do. 
and I think that yeah without question Mr Simpson just kind of says well you could be a chauffeur if you like mm-hmm. you know and I, I think that was that was probably something that wouldn't have occurred to any girl in 1936 that was an option for her yeah and I think also the idea of you can change your mind and you can pivot is yes. really prevalent in this book and it's something that even as an adult in 2020 sometimes I forget and I struggle with this idea I think especially with respect to Petrova that yes right now you're going to be going to this dance academy you're going to be learning these performance skills but that doesn't mean you have to do that forever like that's what the adults in her life are telling her because listeners for reference Petrova of the three sisters is the one who's really not interested in dancing or acting or performing in general she's not terrible at it but it doesn't come naturally to her she doesn't enjoy it it feels like work which is not the experience of Pauline and Posey who who enjoy it and she's struggling with like how she fits in in this family of two other sisters that seem to have found their passion. And the other adults tell her like, just do this for now and you might change your mind. Again, I think by our 2020 standards, it's so pressury to be told at all. Like just yeah. do this for a little while and you can change your mind. But given their economic circumstances and their financial needs, I do think the fact that people are telling her like do this because it'll make you money, but you don't have to do it forever is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, Sylvia or, you know, Garni, um, she, they keep a lot from her, don't they? So Petrova has plenty of opportunity to to tell Sylvia that she doesn't like doing what she's doing. And I think, but she knows that Sylvia would stop, would say, well, then don't do it. But her personal responsibility towards that family and those finances means that she doesn't tell Sylvia. She just, she just carries on, even though she doesn't like it. And, and like you say, she takes, she takes comfort in the fact that she is told, particularly by Mr. Simpson, that that's okay. Do this for now. You don't have to choose. This isn't set in stone. Yeah, I think it's it's a very interesting. It's again, it's their grown up beyond their years, aren't they? Mm. One of the themes that I thought was really interesting was this idea of making a name for yourself mm. and the way that these three girls, the fossils, as they go on to call themselves, have a unique opportunity to make a name for themselves separate from any sort of a family legacy, Yep. which I thought was really empowering for anybody, no matter what kind of a family you're part of. Dr. Jakes, after hearing um, about the way this family has come together, tells Pauline, it's rather exciting choosing your own name and your own relations. I do envy you. I should think it an adventure to have a name like that and sisters by accident. The three of you might make the name of Fossil really important, really worthwhile. And if you do, it's all your own. Now, if I make Jake's really worthwhile, people will say I take after my grandfather or something. Making your name worthwhile is a very nice thing to do. It means you must have given distinguished service to your country in some way. They renew that vow, don't they, on each of their birthdays every year. that They they will try and put the uh, fossil name in the history books because it's their very own and nobody can say that it was because of their grandfathers. And I think that's probably, again, quite an interesting, for the, for the time, you know, they're probably... I would imagine that very, very often girls who did do very well academically or, you know, and go on to um, careers, people, men in particular, would say, well, it's because, you know, her father was a doctor or, you know, there would there would always be a reason why a man had helped you. Yeah, I think that's true. It's interesting that we're, we're hearing about grandfathers. We're not hearing about like grandmothers or even ancestors more generally. The idea here is like, it's your grandfather that you would sort of be crediting your success yeah. to if you weren't in this kind of a family. 
but I think it's pretty inspiring. Like a, the idea that these girls sort of have the power to choose their own fate separate from any family history, but B like you, you can make it anything that you want it to be. Like you aren't under any pressure. I would imagine that at this time in history, there was probably some expectation in families where there was a family business or an industry that a lot of family members had made their way in, that there would be some expectation that younger generations would continue to work as part of that business or to work in that industry. Um, yeah. And so they really have like carte blanche to do whatever they want, yeah. especially because they have Sylvia and Nana. I'm sorry, Garney. We should keep calling her Garney. Um, <laughs> yeah. They have Garney and Nana who are encouraging them, yes, to make money for the family, but they also are really like nurturing their passions, which I thought was really cool to watch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is. I enjoyed the relationship between Nana and the children. I like when they always sort of say, you know, Nana seemed cross, but we all knew that she wasn't really. And I think that's quite, again, just to, to show the, the children's emotional intelligence is that Nana's shouting because, you know, about having to make a dress or, you know, whatever. But they know that she's only shouting because she's worried. And I think that is something quite, yeah, emotionally intelligent that the children have picked up on. Yeah. And I love the idea that it's these five women living in a house together. Yes, they have these boarders coming in, but there's this like family unit of these five girls and women who, as you mentioned, are like able to pick up on each other's emotions. They've developed this emotional intelligence around each other specifically. And they, they just have this like really cool little family structure. I feel like I've said the word cool a lot on this podcast. My apologies. <laughs> um, it's 9am on a Monday and cool is a word that's just coming very easily to me, but it is a cool little family structure. Jenny, did you find that there was one of the three sisters that you related to most on this reread? Pauline Petrova Posey I, I mean I do feel like we don't get a ton of like in-depth character stuff in this book beyond sort of what they're into and how they yeah. embrace or don't this new path of performing but was there one in particular that you related to more than the others for me definitely Petrova and I I wonder if because I always felt that when I was little as much as I wanted to be Pauline there was no way I was ever going to be Pauline so <laughs> but I so I always felt more uh, in tune with Petrova and then re reading it again I felt like almost almost as if we were being channeled towards feeling like Petrova is is more us because she's the one who shows you know she gets nervous which Pauline doesn't so much and Posey is just in her own little world and Petrova really is doing as we were discussing you know things that she's not really comfortable doing and and uh, it's her that finds out that Sylvia uh, Garney's got that they've got to sell the house you know and so I think maybe we get more of an insight into Petrova than any of the others. And and I think for any girl or any child who feels a little bit, you know, not very confident, a little bit out of their comfort zone, which we all do from time to time, I guess that's what draws, that's what drew me towards Petrova. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I think this is really Petrova's story in some ways. I'm getting my MFA right now. And so I'm I'm taking all these writing classes. And one of the things that comes up often is like, whose story is this? You know, yes, we have all these other characters, but whose eyes are we really experiencing this through? And this is a third person narrative. So it's not as though we have like a narrator to see through. But I feel like if this story belongs to one of the three sisters, it is Petrova. I think this works especially well because she is the middle sister. And I think that a lot of middle children sort of adapt to being the observer in the family. They adapt to being the peacekeeper in the family. And that seems to be Petrova's role. Yeah. 
Pauline is definitely like your classic oldest sibling. I say that as an oldest sibling. (laughs) She really is. She sort of has to be in command all the time. She's a perfectionist. She has a tendency to sometimes uh, like get in her head a little bit more than necessary. And that can hurt her in a lot of ways. And then Posey, I also think is sort of like your classic youngest child archetype. Like she kind of flits through life. She's passionate. She, um, you know, the adults around her just find her to be so adorable that yeah, they she will, can like, be the baby, can't she? To, constantly, like, yeah. All the time, yeah. She's charismatic. She just kind of like attracts people to her. And then Petrova is in the middle, and she's kind of balancing these two siblings on either side of her. And unfortunately, like I think that her frustration with her position in this family and with her role in this new world of dance is probably all too familiar to many middle children who just feel like out of sorts most of the time. Um, I definitely related a lot to Pauline. I would have loved to get a little bit more under the hood of their personalities. And I don't know if that happens in the future books in the series. I honestly was expecting the book to be more of Posey's story. Like once we get the introductions to them. Because of the ballet shoes. Yeah. And I, I actually was, when I was going through my notes, I have several places in the book where I marked in the margins, like, I want more Posey. And part of that was just because I did find her charismatic and adorable (laughs) and such the baby, the moment when she is watching the other dancers through the window and and the other girls observe that she's just naturally standing on point. And she's like, oh, that's no big deal. And they ask her to walk on point. They're like, oh, can you walk on your your tiptoes? And she just does it. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting and listeners for context Posey's mother was actually a famous ballerina like we know the most about Posey's sort of family of origin her mom as far as we know might still be alive gum didn't really know he just knew that her mother was no longer capable of taking care of her and so that's why she's part of the fossil family but she has like the genetic makeup of a dancer and so when I read that I kind of was waiting for there to be more Posey and most of what we get of Posey actually is like the other girls teasing her and trying to put her in her place which made me really (laughs) sad I thought she was so sweet they are always accusing her of showing off because she's so naturally gifted and at one point she says it's not showing off it's because I thought of something and wanted to see if my feet would do it yeah and she's so intuitive isn't she you know she'll remember things she learns them through her feet yes you know so they were when they were worried that she might forget the foul she was like no it's okay I've learned it through my feet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. I think, yeah, she could have been explored much more as a character because she has got, she she is really quirky. Yeah. And she just, she takes to all of this like a duck to water to use another cliche. Like she just, she seems to fit in really well, not only in like the physical activity of dance, but also into the culture of dance. Like she seems yeah. to know how to interact with these adults in a way. She's very headstrong. Like when she wants something, she gets it. She even at like six or seven years old figures out a way to negotiate herself into these upper level dance classes. <laughs> she renegotiates her schedule, her school schedule, so that she can get what she wants out of this experience of being at the dance school, we don't get to see her age up to the point where she actually can earn money for the family. The book ends right before that. But I like, I want to know how far she goes because I just found her really entertaining and there's a sweetness about her that I feel like could have been explored more. Well, I think it's almost as if, because the other girls were literally a blank canvas, you know, they have really no 
idea about their their parentage. Um, whereas Posey came with her ballet shoes, and and because Garni and Nana and and the family have always been very upfront with the girls, you know that they are you know, that they were adopted. There was never any kind of like pretending that there was, you know, that Sylvia was their mother. So it's almost like Posey had these shoes. And that is like, well, in a child's mind, then maybe her mind just went, okay, then I'm a dancer. And that kind of shaped her so that everything else just feels very natural to her. You know, she will, you know, well, obviously, I'll be a great dancer because I got these shoes. And that that seems to just sort of Whereas the other girls are not so much. They have to find their own their own place, I suppose. Yeah, there's this sense that I got too, and maybe it's just because I really loved Posey, but I picked up on maybe some jealousy on the part of Pauline and Petrova about Posey's natural abilities. Like they really kind of, they didn't want her to stand out. There's a whole section about how they didn't want her to be conspicuous in the school. Once she gets accepted to these higher level, like private lessons with the head of the school, they're really trying to keep her from talking about it. I think they feel a little bit embarrassed that their younger sister is eclipsing them as a dancer, but also maybe sort of making waves in the school community more than they're comfortable with. Well, there's a big, there's a lot of pride, isn't there? This book is full of pride. Love so, that. you know, don't, we don't want people to laugh at us. Uh, we don't want people to feel sorry for us, you know, stiff up a lip, you, you know, that. so I think, yeah, anything that, that makes them stand out in any way that they might think is negative, that they they try and quash that as quickly as possible, don't they? Yeah. Well, your comment about pride leads us really naturally, thank you for that, <laughs> into a moment about Winifred, who is a character. Oh, I love Winifred. Love Winifred. We have to talk about Winifred. Winifred is a major part really in Pauline's story because Pauline is a really talented actress. Like that's what she seems to be the best at. She seems to have to work harder at it than Posey does, but her hard work does pay off in a way that Petrova's doesn't necessarily because yeah. she does have a little bit more talent buried somewhere inside of her. And um, I will say that there are so many like different performances throughout the book that they kind of run together. She's in a yeah. bunch of shows. Um, <laughs> I'm not even going to try to like no, outline them. I'm glad them. that's not just me. <laughs> no, th- there will not be a quiz on what role Pauline played <laughs> in each of the plays that she was in and like when she behaved poorly, when she didn't behave poorly. That was really hard for me to track. And to be honest, yeah. like for me, it felt it felt like a little bit of overkill on some of the like exposition on that stuff. Yeah. I didn't need all of that. And I think maybe more younger children would enjoy this book if there was a little bit of editing there. Again, 1936. So we're yeah, not. No, I, I think you're right. But... Yeah. Because how many, how many kids of that, this reading age will have known enough about A Midsummer Night's Dream and Richard III um, <laughs> to yeah, be able no. to like, to, you know, to keep up with, like you say, all the detail in the book, it would just be lines of text with names in, you know. Yeah, I found I even I was skimming through parts of it just because it was also like the same. It was a lot about like this. These are the social norms of auditioning. These are the social norms of going to rehearsals. So it was a lot of that. So I, I, I'll i be honest and say I can't remember exactly what play this <laughs> happened with, but Pauline is up for her first really big role. I, maybe this was, I think this was um, think Alice in Wonderland Alice. Yep. because she was trying out for the Alice part. And there's all of this stress about like what the girls are going to wear to these auditions. Because as I mentioned, there's these social norms about like what you wear to audition and they don't really have the money. The girls haven't quite aged into the category where they're able to earn from their performances. So 
the adults are sort of panicking about what are they going to wear? What are they going to wear? And they do work out, they work out a solution with the help of Mr. Simpson, who's able to get them like one nice outfit that they can all share for auditions. And Pauline shows up after all of this like turmoil about what she's going to wear and how she's going to present herself. She's feeling all this pressure because theoretically, this is the first performance that she might be able to get paid for. Mm. And she meets Winifred there. And Winifred is this other student that she knows um, who we are. It's made very clear that Winifred is not cute. She is not not nearly as pretty as Pauline. And Pauline's sitting there thinking about how much her family needs the money that she would earn from this performance as Alice. And Winifred says, there's needing money and needing money. If I could get this job, mother would put half away for me. But even what's left would mean the extra stuff dad needs to get well. He's had an operation and doesn't seem to get right after it. Then there's clothes wanted for all of us, especially shoes. Oh, it would be wonderful if I could get it. And then we go on to get some of Pauline's perspective. The book says, she looked so anxious that Pauline almost hoped that Winifred would get it. Of course, she needed the money too, but somehow, although there was not any for new clothes and the food was getting plainer and plainer, nobody had ever said what a help it would be when she could earn some. And certainly she had never worried about it as poor Winifred seemed to. I know, it's just it's just heartbreaking. And, you know, and there is that thing because it's made really clear that Winifred is the best all-round student. She should have got Alice, but she doesn't look right. And you just think, oh God, oh God, you know, and that's, and I think Noel Stretfield did that as like a, she's clearly saying, you know, this, this happens, girls, you're going to be judged on your looks. Winifred has got all the talent. But she doesn't, you know, she's not pretty. Therefore, she's not going to make it in showbiz. And that's just, oh, it's just heartbreaking. But at the same time, it's, you know, I didn't really pick it up when I was a kid reading it, picking it up as an adult again. I was like, oh my God, that's just, that is life that you know which I know we're trying to really change it and it's it's not the way it should be but for so many years you know you could be really really talented but if you go into that interview and you're not pretty and you're being faced with a panel of men they're gonna pick the pretty girl you know historically that's what would have happened and it's just it's so sad yeah one of the teachers literally says Winifred is the best all-around student the academy has ever had ever had but Pauline looks right for Alice Oh, yeah. See, it just and it just it's so sad. And as much as obviously you want Pauline to get it because Pauline needs the money as well. But there is just that sense that it's just so unfair that a a girl with so much talent is she's not going to make it because her face doesn't fit. And that's so sad, isn't it? And another thing that was really interesting to me, because when she's talking about needing the medicine for her dad. So what kids probably wouldn't pick up on now but I did pick up on is that we are over here we have the NHS don't we We have the National Health Service nobody pays for their operations or you know we pay for our medicines but we don't pay to see a doctor we go to see a doctor for free we go to hospital for free Uh, but that didn't actually start until I think it was 1948 so this is post uh, pre-National Health Service which again was uh, for me I thought that was quite interesting and I'm not sure I think if somebody a child read that now I I think that would probably go over their head. Yeah but in America like that's true like if you it's a struggle for a lot of people to pay for those kinds of bills so I think American children especially if they are a little bit older this sadly wouldn't come as a surprise to them and then they kind of like use Winifred to like punish Pauline at least that was the way that I read it and I'm (laughs) you know I'm probably like taking it a little too seriously but a few weeks into the run of Alice in Wonderland and Pauline is like crushing it she's doing a great job but she's 
really getting an attitude. And you alluded yeah. to this at the beginning of this conversation. She's getting way too like big for her own britches, as my mom would say. Um, <laughs> she's she's really like becoming over the top with her attitude and she starts bossing everybody around at home. She is no longer sticking to the rules of the theater. Like she's sort of walking in and acting like she owns the place. Yeah. And the directors are like, okay, um, this isn't going to work. Let's call in Winifred, the understudy. And so Winnie only gets to perform in one performance of Alice in yeah. Wonderland. And it's only because Pauline is being so terrible. <laughs> I know, and that is a shame. I was thinking it'd be nice if they could just give her or, or maybe just split it between the two of them, you know, and, and sort of have them like a week on, week off type thing would have been really nice. But I guess that's just because we're really rooting for Winifred. <laughs> yeah, we love Winnie here. I feel a little bit like a stage mom reading this book. I'm like, yeah. put her in, put her in, it's her turn. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted that for Winifred. And I thought, I just thought the Winnie character was a great representation of you know, the way we talk about it today, like privilege, like Pauline, while she does need money, she does come from yeah. a more privileged place than Winnie. And she does. I mean, they're middle class fallen on hard times, aren't right. they? Whereas Winifred, I don't think, well, I think Winifred comes from a very working class family doing their best. And, I, and I, so I think there is, there is still an imbalance in their, in their social standing. Yeah. And I think like for all of the stress that Garney and, and Nana felt about making sure that the fossil girls had the right audition clothes and as self-conscious as Pauline started feel, you know, going into the audition, Winnie like does not have the clothes that she should have. She does not walk into the audition looking the way that the powers that be would like her to. And that's because her family can't afford to dress her that way and to take care of her that way. And so I think that again, in like 2020 language, this is a moment to examine Pauline's privilege, yeah. even though she feels like she often doesn't have any. And, and that's something yeah. that I think we're talking a lot about right now is people are sometimes offended by the word privilege because yeah. they think it means that like nobody's acknowledging the struggles that they have had to go through. Yeah, no, they don't want to own it when we, we should be able to say, you know, I mean, my God, I'm a working class woman, but I'm also a working class white woman. Mm -hmm. That gives me a huge privilege right from the word go, you know, right. before you start anything else, that's where I am. There's things that I will never have to worry about because I am a white woman. Right. Acknowledging your privilege doesn't mean that you are saying you haven't had challenges. No, it is saying that there are certain sort of checkbox kind of categories yep. or demographics that describe you yep. that have not contributed to those challenges. And I yep. think in this book, we, we see like a little bit of that examination happening in, in a way that probably wasn't being spoken about very directly when the book was published. Yeah. And I think, you know, because... Even when they uh, um, when they they sort of get a little bit of money together and they go and buy fabric, they buy it in Harrods. Yeah, Harrods. <laughs> Who yeah. buys the Harrods? Yeah, fake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and that's when you think, okay, so there is, yeah, there's there's struggling, and then they're struggling, mm -hmm. <laughs> and 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 they're the thing. The Fossil Sisters' version of struggling is very different to Winifred's. Winifred's mother would not have been going to Harrods at any point to buy the fabric for Winifred's dress. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, I wanted to chat a little bit about the way the story ends. There's a lot going on toward the end of the book, but something that I found that was really interesting was that Pauline and Posey both kind of have these big next steps that they're going to be pursuing. Pauline is going to go to Hollywood. She's going to make movies. 
Posey somehow wormed her way into a trip to Prague um, <laughs> to study with these amazing professional ballet dancer she literally just like walked into a rehearsal that she wasn't yeah. invited to with adults and she was like here I am I'm a great dancer yeah. watch me I think they just yeah they were, she was so precocious they were like well we got to give her a try <laughs> right I mean this is why I'm talking about Posey and I love her um so they both have these plans Garney and Nana are going to accompany one of them each respectively and Gum decides to come back and he's going to hang out with Petrova but there was a moment at the end where Pauline and Posey really rally around Petrova, which was really neat because they've they've now updated this vow that they've made around making a name for themselves. We we didn't mention, but about I would say halfway through the book, they update the vow the first time because initially it was just about making a name for themselves separate from any grandfather figure. About halfway through the book, they update that vow um, to sort of address their financial needs. So they start to promise each other that they're going to make a name for themselves, but also make money to support the family. And then at the end of the book, when Pauline and Posey have these big plans set to go pursue their passions, Pauline makes this sort of like big sisterly executive call that from now on, she and Posey are going to make the vow that they are going to make a name for themselves and make money so that Petrova can be the one to make her name in the history books because she yeah. wants to fly planes, mm. which I thought was so cool. It is really cool and it, it's really lovely. And it's almost like they they recognize, no, because it's not, this superficial is the wrong word, but I think they they felt that they couldn't get, they wouldn't be respected enough to be put into history books, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they're putting all their eggs into Petrova's basket instead, which which is a lovely thing to do. And it is kind of, I don't know, there's a little bit, again, of, you know, Petrova's the plain one. So, you know, she won't be a dancer and she won't be a movie star, but, you know, she's quite clever, so she can fly a plane. Right. And Mr. Simpson will help her. (laughs) Yeah. So you can be, it goes back, you know, you can be clever, but you'll have to be, you'll have to be not pretty. You can, you cannot, you can be one or the other. You know? Yeah, yeah. we did see that binary pop up several times throughout the book where <laughs> yeah. it was like, you can't be smart and pretty. You can't yeah. be talented and pretty. You can't yeah. be, even the fact that when Pauline is being successful in her performances, like she can't be nice. Like you can't be yeah. successful and talented and be nice at the same yeah. time. Like you sort of have to pick a lane in all of these different situations yeah. that came up again and again throughout the book. Yeah. But yeah, Petrova's like, I'm really smart. I'm going to learn to fly a plane. And her surprise that she could actually be the one to make it in history books was really endearing. She says, you would think I would be the one to do nothing at all. And Pauline says, I wouldn't. I've always thought you were the one that might. Film stars and dancers are nice things to be, but they aren't important. And I think to your point, like, it's really sad that Pauline is convinced that as an artist, she's not going to be able to make a difference or gain any recognition. But it is really special that after all of these pages that we've read, getting to know these girls where Petrova always seems to be the one coming up short, her her sisters, especially her older sister, they recognized that she actually is the one who has like the most potential to make a difference. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's lovely. In fact, I would have liked to, <laughs> when I was reading it, I, was, I would have liked to have a bit more, you know, that locked down a bit more, you know, I would like Gum to have said, we'll fix some lessons. Uh, we'll do this, we'll do that. You know, I, I, so, because I just, I felt I didn't want it to be just kind of left like wishy-washy like, oh yeah, no, that's fine. We'll do something with planes. You know, I, I wanted it to be like book her in somewhere. Let's get this going. <laughs> yeah. Did you, have you read the other books in the series? Is it the I same haven't. family? Okay. 
no, I don't think it's the same family. I think it's all, I think they're each different, but uh, no, I haven't, I haven't read the other ones. Okay. Well, and this book covers a lot of ground. I would say the only like negative note that I found in the very few reviews I found of the book online is that a lot of people felt like um, the pacing was kind of funky and that it covers so many years that it would have been nice to slow down. I would have liked maybe this book to be split into a few parts. And that's why I'm sort of bummed that the other books don't actually follow the fossil family because yeah. we've now been in their lives for like a decade. I want to know more. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, it does. Um, it does jump, doesn't it? And sometimes I think, I think Noel um, Stretfield did it quite well, but at the same time there was, I, I would sort of think, Oh, which, which birthday are we on now? You know, where, where are we now? Because in some ways nothing seemed to change there you know, their daily routine didn't really seem to change from the time that they were five to, you know, when they're sort of 14. And they have such a full day, don't they? I mean, my goodness, with the with the walking, you know, you've got to go yeah. out for your walk. Yeah. <laughs> lots of rules, lots of schedules. I mean, they say kids today are overprogrammed, but these three seem extremely overscheduled. Yeah, well, when you think they had to, they wanted to write a letter to um, one of the actors, didn't oh, they? Yeah. And they had, the only place they could find to do it was in the bath. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> they were funny. so busy. Yeah, and they had to hide it from the grown ups. I thought that was a fun moment because they don't have that many, there aren't that many situations where they get to like act like kids. No, in this book. So it really made me happy when we got to to watch them really like act their age. And that was one of them. Yeah. On the whole, Jenny, do you feel that this adult reread of Ballet Shoes has held up to your memory of reading it as a kid? Did it let you down? I know you mentioned earlier on that there were a lot of things, um, or at least a few things that you felt were outdated about the book. What's your overall reflection on how this reread held up to your experience with it as a kid? I still loved it, actually, I have to say, I think that you're so I think I've been over the years, because I'm sort of in my sort of mid 40s now. So I think I have lived with, you know, that um, societal misogyny for my whole life, you know, I mean, there was a waitress in the 80s, for goodness sake. So you know, I, I think that those things didn't surprise me to, to read the way that that girls are expected to be and that women are portrayed and all that kind of stuff. But actually, I think the magic was still there. I think I, I still really, really enjoyed it. I'm not sure how it, it would. I don't know if youngsters today would enjoy it in, in the. Well, what I think is, I think if they were reading it as a classic, I think they would enjoy it. So um, like Goodnight, Mr. Tom or um, The Secret Garden, you know, books that are we think of as, you know, they're oldie fashioned and you go into it knowing that they're going to be old-fashioned so I think if you go into it like that I think a child today would still really enjoy it and I I I still it felt it gave me all the feels I really liked it oh good I'm so glad to hear that I hate to ruin hate to ruin a book for somebody <laughs> other than ballet shoes what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners so I've been uh well at the moment I'm listening to a <laughs> Christmas book um on Audible <laughs> um I know it's a little bit early uh but I've just started re uh, listening to uh, Princess for Christmas um which has been really really I'm really enjoying that that's by Jenny Holiday and there was another book that um the, I've read this year that you know when you get a book that really stays with you um which was The Animals of Lockwood Manor um that's by Jane Healy and um it's a historical novel well I say historical it's set in the um in the war but it's uh it's kind of it's it's creepy and it's about you know museums and cur curators and 
old manor houses and that just you know kind of ticks a lot of boxes for me so I really enjoyed the animals of Lockwood Manor that sounds great and maybe like perfect for cozy winter fall kind of reading definitely yeah well, I already told you before we started recording that I'm getting a jump on my holiday reading. As we record this, listeners, for reference, it's early November. So um, I know we're coming <laughs> to you in mid-December, but right now it does seem a little early, but yeah. funny. So we're doing whatever we want. Um, yeah. And that brings me to, I have to plug Jenny's book, The 12 Dates of Christmas. You've got to pick it up. We got a couple weeks left in the holiday season as we're as we're listening to this episode. And it's really fun. I highly recommend it. I will include a link to it in the show notes for this episode, along with links to all of Jenny's recommendations and a link to Ballet Shoes if you want to check that out as well. Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to read this book and to talk about it with me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. It's been lovely. I was so pleased. I properly did a a little yip when I saw that it was going to be Ballet Shoes. (laughs) Oh, good. That makes me so happy. Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.